All right, Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at this idea of gospel freedom, I pray that you will instill within us a deep love for one another that drives us to serve. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of this sermon, very clever, creative, is Gospel Freedom Part 2. So we began last week talking a little bit about the gospel freedom, what it is that we have in Christ, what our freedom looks like. And so we're going to continue on talking about gospel freedom because Paul continues on talking about gospel freedom. Now, what Paul has been doing throughout this entire book of Galatians, hopefully you've seen this, is he's essentially been calling these churches back to grace And the primary means by which he is doing that is by helping the churches come to a healthy understanding of both the law and grace. But he's also pushing them to understand what faithful obedience looks like. So so he wants them to understand the law, he wants them to understand grace, and he wants them to understand how to live obediently in light of that proper understanding of grace and law. Now here at the beginning, I want to take just a moment and I want us to consider how necessary a proper understanding of both are. How necessary a proper understanding of grace and a proper understanding of law. How necessary they are because there are two dangerous thoughts when it comes to dealing with grace and law that we might be tempted to buy into. And and I want you to pay attention because I believe at different parts in most people's Christian walks, not everyone, some people are a lot more holy than us, amen? But, but for most of us, we will waver between one of these two dangerous thoughts. And so the first dangerous thought is what we would call legalism. Some of you have heard me say that, or we've talked about it, but legalism, basically, in a nutshell, so I'm going to give you a real succinct definition, is uh, legalism is when we think we can earn the love, affection, and continued fellowship with God by what we do. And so this typically plays itself out by being hypersensitive to the law, hypersensitive to the commands, meaning we judge our standing with God, and often we will judge other people's standing with God based on how well they keep the law. Now, I want you to hear this distinction. This is very important. A legalist is not necessarily a Judaizer. We've been talking about them, right? Someone who believes that salvation comes by keeping the law, because legalists, Listen, you can be a born-again, redeemed, will-be-in-heaven Christian and be a legalist. You can believe that you are saved by grace through faith. It is a work of Jesus and Jesus alone. We didn't earn it. We can't do it. There is nothing that we could have done to earn God's favor in terms of salvation. But then we can live as if our sanctification depends on us. Right, Our standing with God in terms of our sanctification all depends on us. And so we can function as Christians, as legalists, when we base all of our identity, all of our standing with God in terms of sanctification, not salvation, but we base 
all of our standing on how well we perform. I would argue that there are legalists sitting in this room right now. As my wife likes to say, she's a recovering legalist. But that we genuinely believe that our standing with God, though we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, our standing with God, God's pleasure with us in terms of our sanctification, depends solely on how well we keep the law. And so some people would argue that these individuals, right, these legalists have a higher view of the law. But I would argue they simply don't understand the law. But on the other hand, there's, there's kind of the flip side of that coin. The second dangerous thought is something that we call antinomianism. I'm going to spell it for you, okay? You're taking notes. Write it down. Antinomianism. Anti, A-N-T-I, no, N-O, meanism. M-I-A-N-I-S-M. I had to check to make sure. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-M. Antinomianism. And what antinomianism is, in a nutshell, it's basically where you believe that because you have the grace of God, the law no, matter, no longer matters at all. That obedience does not matter. God does not care about obedience because you are in his grace. There is grace for you. Uh, there, there, is, there is grace that washes over everything that you do. So it's not really important whether you're obedient to the commands of Scripture or not because it's all about grace. Some people would argue that these individuals have a higher view of grace. But I would contend with you that these individuals simply don't understand grace. You see, we want to develop a healthy balance to understand how the grace of God and obedience to the commands of God, when both viewed properly, play themselves out, check this out, in blessings. So when we have a proper understanding of the grace of God and the law of God and how it is we live in light of those two things, when we are living faithfully, it will result in blessings. I want to show you this. Now, I wish I could say I, could, I came up with this on my own. Can't take credit for it. So this idea came from uh, another pastor who I listened to as he was working through this concept. Uh, one of my favorite pastors. I have a, a top five sermons of all time that I've ever sat and listened to, right? It doesn't count if you listen to it on like Spotify or anything. But I, I have sat and listened to. I have a, a, a top five list, and this pastor has two of those top five spots. And so his name is Ligon Duncan. Now, he's a Presbyterian, okay? Yeah. That, <laughs> you. You're in the wrong church. That was a little too, uh, we don't baptize babies. Uh, no, uh, just kidding. All are welcome. We have, we've all got struggles. No, but, uh, 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 sorry, lovely and Duncan. Uh, I don't fully remember the context of the sermon. I don't even think that this was the, well, I do remember the context of the sermon, but I don't think this was the main part of the sermon. But one of the things that he argued is that uh, uh, we, we see kind of this relationship between grace and law and obedience playing itself out in blessings. And so what I want to do is kind of paraphrase his thought on this. So this next little bit of introduction is actually his thought. Well, it's the Bible's thought. He just helped bring it to light. And, and what I want you to see is that in order to understand this relationship of grace and law playing itself out in blessings when we are obedient, to understand this, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28... We read this, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Listen to this, God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now, this is crazy to think about. The very first thing that Adam and Eve heard out of the mouth of God by their own ears was blessing. God blessed them. That was the first thing that he did, but that blessing was tied to a what? A commandment. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So listen, this blessing was not earned by them. It was not that they earned the blessing of God by what they did. They were blessed before they'd ever done anything. The blessing of God was spoken over them before they had the chance to be faithful or not be faithful to the command because they were already made in his image. But what happened and what God was trying to help them see is that they will live in and experience the blessing of God given out of the grace of God through the obedience to the command of God. That's a huge statement. I'm going to say it again, that we experience the blessing of God given out of the grace of God through our obedience to the command of God. Now here's why I say all that. Our obedience to God matters. God, through his grace, and though he gives grace, never for a moment diminishes our need for obedience. That is why if you remember back to the third point last week in our sermon when we started this on gospel freedom, we spoke about how gospel freedom actually frees us to what? Follow the law. Because as new creatures in Christ, there is still an expectation on us that we will be obedient. And in Jesus, through the Spirit, we are freed to now pursue obedience. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we falter, when we fail, we no longer bear the burden of the law. We no longer bear the condemnation of the law. And we are still freed to pursue the law. And this is all because of the grace of God. When we do this, When we follow the commands of God, we experience the blessing of God through the grace of God. And as we do this, we are modeling what the garden looked like. And in essence, we are modeling what heaven looks like. So obedience matters. You might be thinking, well, Michael, why are you saying all of this? Because this morning, as we dive into our text, we're going to talk about one of what I believe to be the most difficult commands for for Christians outside of loving God. I think that this is the most difficult command for Christians outside of loving God. Do you know what it is? Loving others. Loving others, but we have to make no mistake about it. It is a command of God, but the promises of God is that by the grace of God and we're obedient to the command of God, we will experience the blessing of God. So you and I, we ought to want to love our neighbors well because in that obedience, we experience the what? The blessing of God. And so this morning, as we walk through these verses, I kind of have three headings for you, three three areas I think Paul addresses and I want to just draw your attention to. I'm going to tell you what they are up front. So we're going to look at the call, we're going to look at the response, and we're going to look at the warning. The call, the response, and the warning. So first, let's, let's look at the call. Look there at the beginning of verse 13. Paul says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. 
You were called to be free, brothers and sisters. And so as we consider this idea of the call mentioned here in the first few words of verse 13, there are a couple important aspects to those first few words. First, we have to notice where it says that you were called. The word called there is significant because it reminds us what we began talking about last week, that our freedom is a result of grace. You were called to be free. You were called to be free. And by Paul mentioning this, he is helping us, right, to fix our eyes on Jesus and not ourselves as we think about this concept of freedom. In essence, what Paul is doing is, again, reminding us of the fact that biblical freedom is not the same as what we perceive as earthly freedom. Because typically when you talk about earthly freedom, uh, you're talking about, man, you have won this freedom for yourself. Maybe it's in the context of war, right? Countries who are free and who rebel against another nation and they crush them and they in their own power, they've earned, they've won their freedom. We often think of freedom in terms of freedom means that I get to do what I want to do. It's determined by me. It's about my desires, my wants, my needs. And when I get to live out what I want, the way I want, and no one tells me anything, then I am free. And it's all about me, me, me. And what Paul does is when he speaks of the concepts of biblical freedom, he says, stop looking at yourself, but look to the one who called you to freedom that was given by the grace of God. And so what this should drive us to is worship God because we are free. When we genuinely fix our eyes on the fact that, man, God has through his grace granted us freedom. We have been called into freedom by his finished work. It shouldn't well in us a sense of pride and look how great I am. Right? Man, I couldn't do it. But it makes God look all the more glorious because he is the one who called. He is the one who has given grace. He is the one who has purchased our freedom. So again, it goes back to what we mentioned last week. And this also reminds us that, that because we are called to freedom and because we did not earn our freedom, we don't get to define the terms of our freedom. So if God says that freedom is played out by loving God and loving people, we have no ground to stand on to argue anything other than that. Because God is the one who won our freedom. He gets to define the terms. But there's another interesting thing to note about this call, and we've already hit on it a little bit, but we are called to be free. Now you might be thinking, yeah, Michael, we've, we've talked about that. You, you beat that into us already. But but you got to notice this, right? The context of these verses is not about how our gospel freedom plays itself out in relationship to God. This context is about how our gospel freedom plays itself out in relationship to one another. And so this furthers what we should already have as our understanding that the gospel is not merely concerned about our vertical relationship. The gospel is not merely concerned about us being made right with God. Now, it is concerned about that. It is supremely concerned about that. But the gospel is not only concerned about that. Because what we see in this passage is that the gospel is also intimately concerned about our horizontal relationships as well. That the freedom that we have in Christ does not just help us to operate correctly in God's eyes, but it also helps us to operate correctly as we live out this life among brothers and sisters and even those who are lost. That our freedom isn't just about us and God. Our freedom is also about how we live with one another. And so what that means 
hear me on this, is that the gospel gets to dictate how we relate to God and the gospel gets to dictate how we relate to one another, especially in how we love one another. The gospel gets to dictate the terms. Now, here's why I say all that. Because we, even as Christians, are tempted to let the world dictate how we interact with other people. If you think I'm wrong, in Facebook, in the search engine, type in Donald Trump and look at your believing brothers and sisters and what they have to say. In the words that they speak to one another, I don't care if you're for or more against him, I genuinely don't. I'm more concerned in this context about how we relate to one another. And we think that how the world relates is how we get to relate. Right? And we have to guard against the temptation to allow the world to do that because what this passage tells us is that the gospel gets to dictate how we relate to one another. And the way that we relate to one another, as we'll see in a moment, is service flowing through love. Service flowing through love. But here's the other interesting thing I want you to note about the call this morning. And this is important. Is that this call is a familial call. It's familial. Notice how he says... You were called to be free, brothers and sisters. So, God, or so Paul, as he's writing this, isn't just trying to be really eloquent when he throws in brothers and sisters, right? He's not trying to add to the word count of the letter so he can submit it for the grade, right? He, he, he's inspired by God. He's writing words that God wants us to see. And God wants us to see in the context of our freedom as it's lived out with others. He wants us to see these words, brothers and sisters, because he is trying to help us understand that the call to love well, the call to serve well, is not necessarily an individual call. It's a familial call. It is a call to us as the family of God to collectively live lives of service and love for one another. And so what that tells us is that if one or two people in the church are serving really well and loving really well, and the rest of us are not serving really well and not loving well, really well, then we as the family of God aren't doing what we should do. It's this communal understanding of living out your freedom in the family of God. Now that's going to come back up in just a moment and it's going to play a very important part of our second point. But I want you to just see and kind of put a note there that this call to freedom, this call to live lives of freedom in terms of our horizontal relationship is a familial call. It's a call to family. But here's the, the second point that I want you to to see this morning. So not only do I want you to pay attention to the call, but I want you to pay attention to the response, or you could call it the action, right? So what do we do in light of this call? What does it look like? How, how does it play itself out in terms of our relationships to one another? And look at the end of verse 13 through 14. He says, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we think about this call, how do we respond to the fact that our freedom is meant to be played out along horizontal, uh, in horizontal relationships? The first thing that Paul wants us to, to pay attention to is the fact that there is a real temptation to use our freedom that we have in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. And typically... Church, this will happen when we think more about ourselves than we do about everyone else. 
And we are opening the door for the flesh. We are giving our freedom and uh, we're using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh when we, when we approach this freedom that God has given us and we start thinking only about how it affects us. You see, that's why that familial aspect is very important, right? Because even in saying that, Paul is trying to communicate to us that when we talk about freedom, we're not only supposed to think about ourselves. Right? In the Christian lives, we're third at best. It's God first, people second, and then us. Yet for most of us, we completely flip that on its head, don't we? It's us first, then it's people, and not in a healthy way, and kind of what they think about us and what they perceive about us. And, you know, we want to live right in front of them. And then after that, once we've gotten the approval of everyone else, then we'll consider how do we love God. But he says, no, 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 the Christian life is primarily about God first, others second, and at best, you're third on the list. At best, there might even be some things above you still. But we give an opportunity for the flesh when we think of ourselves first. And so what I want you to understand is that service cannot be an afterthought at best. And so what we're going to see in a moment is that our freedom played out faithfully in relationship to others will always result in service. We are set free to serve, but when we become our own primary focus, we will fail to live out this freedom-fueled service that God calls us to. And so in essence, what Paul is saying is it is a very dangerous thing when you don't approach all of your relationships with the Philippians 2, 3, and 4 mindset. Love that passage. I quote it a lot. You should know it by now, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Listen, that is not just a verse for you when you're dealing with a spouse. That is not just a verse for you when you are dealing with someone in conflict. That is a verse that dictates how you are meant to live every moment of every day in relationship with other people. Look not to your own interests first, but you look first to the interests of others. And when we fail to do that, we are giving freedom and opportunity to be used in not so helpful of a way. So Paul goes on, though, and he says, rather than serve yourself, rather than use your freedom to satisfy your own wants, he says, serve one another through love. So here it is. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Our freedom lived out faithfully in our relationship with other people will result in service motivated by love. Now, let's begin. We say motivated by love. Motivated by a love for who? Because some people would read this and say, well, you've got, to, you know, you've got to serve one another and be motivated by your love for God. And while that's important and could be argued, I don't think that's the love he's talking about because of what comes next. Right? That the whole law is fulfilled in what? Loving your neighbor. And so what he is saying is that this freedom fueled, this gospel-enabled love or service for one another is fueled by a genuine love for other people. Now here's where Christians often get it wrong. We try to serve others out of our love for God while disliking people. And it doesn't work that way. Because God isn't just calling us to love him and then deal charitably with everyone else regardless of how we feel about him. Although sometimes we have to deal charitable with other people when we don't really like them. Amen? But what he is calling us here to is, no, 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 we have to fight to not just serve one another, but to genuinely love one another. 
to genuinely care for one another. Your service will always run out of steam if it is only motivated by a love for God. Now, it has to be motivated by a love for God because without a love for God, you can't love people. Right? 1 John 4, 19, we love because he what? He first loved us. The only way we know love is because God has loved us and we have loved God and that love flows over into a love for other people. So you have to love God, but you can't only love God if you're going to serve people in the way that your gospel freedom is calling you to serve. We have to fight to genuinely love people. And can we just be honest for a second, church? Sometimes people are really hard to love. Sometimes people are really hard to love. And I find myself frequently, kind of one of the tools that I try to use is in those moments when I am having a very difficult time loving someone else, I try to remind myself of how difficult I must be for God to love at times. How often I offend him, how often I hear what he has called me to, I see the goodness of his hand and yet I so often choose the other. I'm sure I could be a difficult person to love. And that's the beauty of God. He never struggles to love me, amen? Because his love is perfect. But I try to remind myself that I'm probably not the easiest person to love as well. And I try to remind myself of the gospel and what Christ has done for me and the fact that he has still lived the perfect life that I should have lived, died in my place, and that he has called me and that he has redeemed me and that he has held me fast, even though I so often botch it. And sometimes that is the motivation I need to love other people well. But what I want you to understand is that this service, this this freedom-fueled service, only works if we genuinely love one another. Again, it's so significant. Our love for one another is so significant that Paul quotes from Leviticus and says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law. I mean, can you imagine how crazy that would have been for the churches in Galatia to be reminded of this? This churches that are trying to keep all these laws. They're thinking about getting circumcised. They're trying to keep the food laws. They're, They're trying to go back to all of this stuff. And Paul looks at him and says, the entire law is fulfilled in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, be honest with you, the first time I read this, I was like, Paul got it wrong. Right, because Jesus says something different. Jesus says that the greatest commandment, right, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And as I started to think about it, I was like, oh, Paul's not wrong. I'm wrong. Because he is right. Is that what Jesus has said is that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He's right to say the law is fulfilled when you get to the loving your neighbor as yourself. Because, as we just mentioned, the only way you can love your neighbor as yourself is when you've already loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because out of our love for God and his love for us flows out of us a love for one another. So Paul's exactly right. If we want to fulfill the law, we've got to really love God first. And just to mention, Paul already talked about loving God in the section before this when he's talking about our relationship with God. Do you remember? What matters is faith working through Love, a love for who in that context? It's a love for God. So he's already dealt with that. He's already established that we have to love God with all of our heart, uh, soul, mind, and strength. And part of the evidence that we are doing is that love is flowing out of us towards other people, even those that are difficult to love. Amen? Amen. Gospel love will flow over onto people that many seem to be, for many that may seem to be unlovable. But the entirety of the law is fulfilled in this statement. So I want to talk a little bit about this love, what this love 
looks like, what it looks like to serve one another and to be motivated by a genuine love. Now, I want you to track with me because here's, here's kind of the argument that I'm going to try to argue for you and I hope to explain it when we consider loving serving well. That, that's my aim, right? I want you to see how the gospel has called you to love and to serve, and I want us to be able to do it well. Amen? So here's what we have to understand. Here's my argument, that when it comes to serving others, you don't get to dictate what that service looks like. If you are the one serving, I would even go so far as to say, and I'm going to try to argue this, that as you are loving others, you don't get to dictate what that love looks like played out. Now, let me explain that to you. We know what love is. Right? Even in an objective sense, because of 1 Corinthians 13, God's very kind. He tells us what love is. We don't have to worry. Love is not a feeling. Amen? Love is, love is not just this emotional feeling. There is an objective reality to what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not easily angered. It, it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. That's what love is. That is the objective reality of what love is. It's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrong, does not delight in evil, rejoices in truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's love. That is objective truth. But here's what I want you to see. That plays itself out in different ways. Let me try to show you what I mean by this. If we are considering others well, if we are putting them first, counting their needs greater than our needs, then we need to consider how we show those objective truths to people in a way that they will feel served and loved. I'll give you an example. One of the things in that list in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love does is love protects. That's truth, amen? Love protects. What in the world does that look like? That depends on the person in the situation, Right? That depends on the person in the situation. I might feel very protected by you in terms of my fight against sin if you come up to me and you just say, Michael, you are sinning and you need to stop it. For me, I would feel protected. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Let me tell you all something. If you go to my wife and you say you are in sin and you need to stop it, it will not go well for you. It will not go well for her soul. She will not feel loved and she will not feel served. Because part of our loving one another, part of our serving one another is knowing one another, right? That familial bond. We know one another. We know how to care for them. We know how to protect them. We know how to flesh out these objective realities in a practical way, in a way that a person feels served and loved. Let me give you another one. It says that love is not rude. Do you know how subjective rude is? That changes sometimes by the, by the part of town you're in, Right? One of the beautiful things about our church, I don't know if you know this, if, you, if you, you've not noticed it, you can look around and see it, is that we have both white and black people here. Amen. But one of the things that I have learned is I have grown to, to try to love my brothers and sisters well that come from a different background than me and often a different culture than me, is that there are things that in my culture are rude to me that are not rude to them. And there are things in their culture that are rude to them that are not rude to me. And so if I interact with them and I'm trying to serve and love my brothers and sisters, but I only operate off of what works for me, they won't feel served and loved. It plays itself out in very subjective ways. Let me give you another example, right? So 
One of the things that we're called to do is bear one another's burdens. We're going to get to that when we get to chapter 6, verse 2, right? In my Bible, you probably can't see it, but there's a line drawn from serve one another with love right to carry one another's burdens, okay? So that's part of the way it gets fleshed out. So we're called to carry one another's burdens, and that's specifically talking about the context of sin, right? When our brothers and sisters around us are struggling with sin, we're not called to pull back. What are we called to do? Press in, guarding ourselves, But press in. You don't shoulder your sin by yourself. And one of the ways that we press in is by calling one another out for sin. Can we just be honest that that's not always our favorite thing to do? It's not always the easiest thing to do. But sometimes we make it even harder because the way we go about calling people out for sin is the way we like to be called out for sin and not the way that is most beneficial to a person. Again, I'm a straight shooter nine times out of ten in how I like to be dealt with. I'm talking about how, how you, so if you need to come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Michael, uh, I think you sinned. I think here's how you did it. I think here's the evidence for it. What you'll probably get from me is a thank you. Let me think about that and I'm going to get back to you because I'm not just going to let, I'm not going to let you walk away, right? Like you've got, you stepped into this with me, so we're going to see this through to the end. But I'm going to process it. It's not going to hurt my feelings if you come out. I mean, don't yell at me. Right? Like, Michael, you sin. Like, no, don't do that. Like, stop it. But you can just, you can just come right at me. And I'm okay with that, especially because we're family, right? And I know you. But again, and I, I'm not picking on her, we're just wired differently. It's the way that, that God, and, God made us, and I love it. You can't do that with my wife. I am a living testimony to that. Aaliyah, for the longest time in our marriage, called me the spiritual football coach. She'd be struggling. I'd be like, let's get it together, right? Run, run. Like, that's just how I work. And the way that I loved and served my wife was by coming alongside of her, reminding her that I was for her, reminding her that I was on my side by being gentle. That's a biblical concept, amen, right? Being compassionate and caring and walking in this delicately with her. And it, it's hard for me at times because that's not how I'm wired. But if we're going to live this out of serving through love, thinking first of the other person, then I've got to know what makes the other person tick. Now that takes us back to the familial aspect. I said it was going to come up. The way that this works itself out most beautifully is when we are actually family. Not that we just get together on Sundays and we hang out, but we are family. We are living life together. Now listen, even in a church our size, please hear me say this. I know that even for me as a pastor, I cannot live in the same depth of fellowship with every one of you. I can't. Right? And I don't think the Lord is bothered by that. There are some people that we are just closer with, and that's okay. But I've got to have some depth with every one of you. And some of you might be sitting right here, but you've got no depth with me. You are right. And as I was working on this message, like, I'm serious. That was something the Lord laid on my heart. And so I'm going to fight for that with some of you that I don't have. It's not that I don't like you. I mean, if I don't have a lot of depth with you, I don't know if I don't like you. But that's something that the Lord has laid on me to press into you. But we have to genuinely press into one another to be family. Because what that will help us do is love one another well. And actually know what makes each other tick. Because some of us are out here like, I'm trying to love this person. And every time I reach out to them, they push back. Or I just get a cold shoulder from them. Or, 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 or they just don't want to do it. Or they just don't care about those things. When probably what's happening is you don't know them well enough to even be approaching them right now. You, you just don't know that about them, right? It, even though there are these objective realities of what love is, it plays itself out in very subjective ways, and we have to get to know people. 
And now one of, the, one of the defenses that I get from people, right? So this was, I use this. So this is the one I'm going to pick on, right? Um, I was the football coach to my wife. And you know what I told her? Well, that's just how the Lord made me. <laughs> that's, just, that's just how the Lord made me. I'm just a straight shooter. I'm not going to apologize for that. That's who I am. Let me tell you something, church. If what I am and who I am does not serve and love my brothers and sisters in Christ, then there's sin. And I got to figure that out. And I got to work through that. Right? Because there's scripture that would support the fact that that's sin for me, right? We're called to be gentle. It's not very gentle. Again, gentleness is subjective. It can play itself out in different ways, right? There's a spectrum of gentleness. Like I said, I'll feel like you're being gentle to me if you come to me and say, hey, Michael, I think you sinned. Here's how I think you did it. I think we need to sit down this week and talk about it. That's gentle to me. It's not gentle to everyone. And so we have to guard, because listen, here's what we're doing. When we're saying that I'm just this way, you got to deal with it. We're not living out Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. That means in how that other person is hardwired is more significant than how I'm hardwired. That's tough, brothers and sisters. That's tough. But that's what it means to be all things to all people. That's what it means to let this gospel freedom, right, produce in us this freedom-fueled service where we are going to sacrifice our own likes and desires and how we like to communicate for the good of our brothers and sisters to serve them and love them. Well, now I want to be clear about something. I'm not telling you that you have liberty to not do the things that the Bible tells you to do. Because though I said that loving and serving is often subjective, it's not always subjective. Sometimes being faithful to love and serve a brother and sister will hurt them, but that's because of their immaturity and not yours. And we've got to be careful about that, too. But we can't use that as a scapegoat because I think most of the times what we do, well, they're just too immature. Well, it's like, well, maybe you just came at them wrong. Like, like maybe you just, you, you didn't know them well enough. And so we've got to really wrestle through that and do the hard work of knowing our brothers and sisters so that we can love and serve them well. Because again, church, this is a big picture here. Obedience brings about what? Blessing. And if we want the blessing of God experienced in our life and to live, be lived out in our life, if we want to walk in that blessing that Adam and Eve were called to, we have to be obedient. And obedience takes work. You tracking with me? And we get really jammed up. We do when, when, by thinking that, that we should serve everyone and love everyone based off of how we feel we need to be served and we need to be loved. We don't need to think about ourselves. Because if the body familially is doing this well, other people will think about you. You don't need to think about yourself. I mean, that's a crazy thing, right? I don't need to think about me because if we're doing this right, you're thinking about me. And you don't need to think about you because if we're doing this well, I'm thinking about you. Man, that's so backwards from the world, right? That's difficult though, isn't it? Okay, guess not. Listen, and we grow in faithful service through love as we grow to be family. So my call to us is let's grow to be family really, really well. And then the loving and the serving will come a little bit easier for you. It's not always easy, because again, there's some tough things in loving and serving one another, right? But there's also some really good things that we get to experience when we're living as family. So let me move on. I've got more there, but we'll talk about it at some point in my ministry here at New Breed. Here's the third thing that I want you to see. It's the warning. 
Look at verse 15. You got a warning from Paul. Here says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. We're not dealing with petty insults or mere flesh wounds. What Paul tells us is that when we don't get this right, we can destroy each other. We can look back at churches who have split over carpets and see that biting and devouring one another can destroy you. And so Paul gives this warning, and I want you to understand, Paul's thinking of this in a context, remember, because what's going on there in the churches in Galatia? Part of what the Judaizers are arguing is that this man is a false prophet. They're attacking him as a person. They're attacking his gospel. They're attacking his message. They're attacking his salvation. And Paul is saying, look at what's going on in the churches. They are biting and they are devouring other Christians. And if they claim to be Christians, how can you do this? Because they're going to destroy us. He's saying this in a context, but, but that warning rings so true of us. Brothers and sisters, if we bite and devour one another, we have to watch out and somewhat expect that we will be consumed by one another. You want to watch New Breed Church die? You want to watch New Breed Church die? Don't love and serve one another. Don't love and serve one another. You want to watch New Breed Church die? Start biting and devouring one another. I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I believe the word of God that that's what will happen. We want to see New Breed Church flourish. We want to see this body experience and live in the blessing of God. I do. I really do. Kind of staked my life on it in some ways. Y'all pay the bills. (laughs) But more than that, for the glory of God. Amen? That was a bad one. Take that one. We'll cut that one out. Uh, But if we want to see this place flourish, be faithful to what God has called you to. Be obedient and watch God do what only he can do. Bless. Bless. But I want to kind of give you some pictures because we can read things like bite and devour. Like, What does that look like to bite and devour one another? Well, let me give you, uh, we'll go with six of them. I have a list of 28 here, but I'm going to give you six. What it looks like to bite and devour. So here's one way in which, you, so, so when I speak about this list, here's how I'm going to frame it. You might have a propensity to bite and devour one another if, okay? So you might have a propensity to bite and devour one another if you never hope the best in a person. That comes from 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things. If you never hope the best in the person, here's what I mean by that. You are always expecting someone to do bad, wrong, or sin, and they've got to prove you otherwise. You are always expecting the worst in a person and never hoping even the best, hoping the spirit working. Let me give you a great example. Thank you for social media. Kanye West. Kanye West. I was appalled by things that I was reading by believers. Hoping the worst in this man who has professed faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm not saying we don't have to be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. I don't think it is wrong to say, man, I really am going to kind of watch over time and hopefully see fruits of righteousness. We do that with everyone. It's no different with him. But to immediately discredit the testimony of a man because he has a past... I know my story. Have you forgotten yours? 
Aaliyah, so Aaliyah and I were talking about this morning, and she said something to me that just stuck with me. It was really profound. She said, you know, people forget that the day before you're a Christian and the day after you're a Christian typically look the exact same. You have not grown. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that response, brother. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> the day before and the day after typically don't look that different. Amen. Because sanctification isn't done day one. You're still working through some stuff, amen? Listen, I've walked with the Lord for almost 20 years. I'm still working through some stuff. Because he has a past? Because of who he's married to? She didn't proclaim faith. Let me just take her out of the equation. We are dealing with a man who has professed faith in Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you, I listened to Jesus is King all last night and this morning. That was my hype, hype album before church this morning. God is, play that track. But you want to watch Christians bite and devour one another. Read Facebook and Twitter about this man. Golly, church. What? He has on one of his songs where he just kind of throws out the fact that he's like, man, I felt the most heat from the church. Man, if that doesn't speak ill of us, that we can't hope the best in him. We can't hope the best in him. I'm glad nobody doubted me like they doubt him. I would have walked away. No, I wouldn't have. God would have kept me. Never hoping the best in somebody. Here's, here, you might have a propensity to bite and devour one another if you always see fault and you can never celebrate God's goodness. That's just not in people. Sometimes that's in the church. You look at the church and you can only see what's going wrong in the church. And, I, and, and so this one even is specifically cautious, you know, for, for Pastor Mark, Pastor John, for myself. That's tough for us as pastors and we got to guard against that. It's easy for us to just focus on what's not going well in the church. And we will be tempted even as pastors to bite, to bite and devour you if we can't celebrate and see God's goodness working. That's also in the lives of other people. When you look at people, especially those that you might not get along with super well in the family of God. Because sometimes you've got that like second cousin that's out there, you know, and, and that uncle that's a little crazy. But we're family, okay? But, but when we can only see the faults in a person and never God's goodness we may have a propensity to bite and devour. We may have a propensity to bite and devour one another if we always have a word of criticism but never a word of praise. Hey, husbands and wives, pay attention to this one. When you are dealing with your spouse, if you typically have a word of criticism and never a word of praise, you might have a propensity to bite and devour. And I would go so far as to say if you want to watch a marriage be consumed, bite and devour one another. You may have a propensity to bite and devour if you always complain and never celebrate. Always complain. I pick on us as saints all the time. I, you know, sometimes we are the most downtrodden and downcast people and we have the grace of God. I don't get it. Now, I'm not saying there aren't real pains and real struggles, and we can't be afraid to show that because we've got to weep with those who weep, but we've also got to rejoice with those who rejoice. And if you, if you just have this propensity to always complain about everything, doesn't even have to be people. Everything's wrong, right? My job's not going the way I want it to. Here's what's wrong with it. My kids aren't doing what I want. Here's what's wrong with it. You know, I'm, all, I'm always angry. I'm always frustrated. I'm always tired. And it's just complain, complain. And, and, and every time anybody gets around you, they just hear complain. Well, listen, those of us who aren't like that, let's walk alongside those and show some people and how to celebrate the goodness of God because God has done great things, amen? But we might have a propensity to bite and devour if we... 
always complain and never celebrate. We also might have a propensity to bite and devour if we talk about people behind their back. And saints, we can do it too. The way we do it, we try to do it in a holy way though. We do it through two of our holy ways. One is we're going to pray for that person. And then we've got to go into all their details. All their details. But the other way that we do it is by seeing errors in a brother or sister that are, we could often think of sometimes minor little faults, right? And rather than walk alongside them and help them grow, we just joke about them with other people. I'm very, I've been guilty of this. We might have a propensity to bite and devour. You see, biting and devouring doesn't always mean taking big bites. Sometimes it's a lot of little bites. We'll, we'll, we'll stop with this one. You might have a propensity to bite and devour if you have listened to this entire service and only thought of the other people who need to hear this message. The other people who need to learn how to serve well. The other people who need to learn how to love well. You probably have a propensity to bite and devour because you don't see the word of God as for you. Brothers and sisters, we want to see gospel freedom lived out. We want to look like Jesus, and that gospel freedom plays itself out in our love for God as we relate to him as free creatures because of what he has done. And it plays itself out in how we relate to one another out of love for one another and a love for God that plays itself out by real service for one another. And this is the freedom you were called to. Walk in the freedom the gospel has provided for you. And here's the crazy thing about it. As you walk in obedience and the freedom that God has given you, you will experience, I believe, in a real and tangible way, the blessing of God. I don't know exactly how that will play itself out for you. But I believe God when he says it. I believe that we will experience tangibly the blessing of God. Again, I don't know what that looks like. But I trust him. And I don't think you always have to know because I know the blessing of God is better than anything this world could offer me. I know what this world can offer me. I don't always know how the blessing plays itself out, but I bet God's is better. And so let's walk in this gospel freedom. And here's where I want to end. When we want to see what gospel freedom looks like, we can look to Jesus because he modeled it perfectly. He walked in free fellowship with God communion with God throughout the entirety of his life. How many times throughout the Gospels do you hear, and Jesus got by himself and prayed? He walked in fellowship with God. He loved God so much so that in the garden, he was able to say, not my will, but your will. Because he was walking in fellowship with God. And then he walked in fellowship with his neighbor well. He loved his neighbor to the point Service might cost us something, but it'll never cost us as much as it cost Jesus. He did. He came and he lived this perfect life in perfect fellowship with God and in perfect fellowship with one another. And he, he bore our sins thank you, on the cross. Right? He took our sins upon himself so that we could have this freedom, so that we could live in, in, in relationship with God and in right relationship with one another. And he, he was buried, he was raised from the dead three days later, declaring that God had accepted the sacrifice. And because of Jesus, there is real 
freedom. And now, brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit, we will walk in that freedom. And I'm excited about what's coming up in two weeks, because in two weeks, we're going to look at what comes next in Galatians, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and living in the Spirit. We're going to see even more how to flesh this thing out. But by the Spirit's power, we can walk in the freedom that was won for us. And God gets all the praise and all the glory. Amen.